This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible Line. You may be with us for the first time here at 88.7 or at WAGP.net. And for the next hour, we will be taking people's questions. Maybe there's a particular issue in your personal life you want biblical counsel on or a passage of Scripture or theological challenge. Uh, If we can be of help, again, all you need to do is pick up the phone, and by God's grace, we will try to respond locally. The 843 South Carolina Exchange is 525-1859, 525-1859, or you can email us here directly in the studio, and the email address is TBL, it stands for the Bible Line, at WAGP.net. All right, we have Walter behind the board today. Walt, let's go ahead and get started. Yes, sir. Our first question comes from Anthony out of Beaufort, South Carolina. He writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy. I recently had a friend tell me that there were some books that did not make it into the Bible. I don't know if you're aware of these supposed books or not, but I would like to know if they are in fact real, and if they are, who who decided that they would not be allowed into the Bible and why? Unless they are some kind of hoax, in either case, I would love to know so that I can enlighten my friend to know more and better spread the message. Well, we had a very similar question to this last week, a little bit different, but I reminded our listeners that there is a series of books that were written between the two Testaments. Uh, We refer to them as apocryphal books uh, between Malachi and Matthew during that 400 years of silence where there was no prophet in Israel. And they record history. The challenge, though, is that some of our friends in the Roman Catholic and Orthodox realms have added those to the Bible, though they were never considered uh, inspired Scripture. And then beyond that, after the New Testament canon was written, about 100 to 300 years after, there's pseudepigraphal books. Pseudo means false, graphe, right? So the, the false writings that nobody really recognizes as inspired, except a a few heretics from time to time. So let's just ask um, canonicity. Canon is from a Latin word, means a measuring stick. Uh, And so we have a measuring stick of truth. We call it the 66 books of the Bible. But there were some tests by which people could recognize that that uh, that a person was inspired by God. The first, of course, is we're, we're told right out of the chute in the Torah, the first five books and passages like Deuteronomy 18.18, 18, that if a person is a true prophet of God, they'll have some credentials. So let me just turn over there for a moment. Uh, Moses is uh, preaching, and he speaks of a coming prophet uh, that will be like him. He's speaking of the Messiah, and you'll hear this passage sometimes referenced in the New Testament, even asked directly, are you the prophet who you know Moses wrote about? And then Peter will reference him and so forth. And uh, But then he also says uh, about the tests of a real prophet from a phony, 
he said, I shall, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, a true prophet, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that the thing which the Lord has not spoken, the prophet has spoken it presumptuously, uh, you shall not be afraid of him. So number one, uh, a book of the Bible that would be considered part of the canon of Scripture had to be written by a true prophet or a true man of God. And very often, uh, God would authenticate his messenger with miracles. Think about Moses, who gave us the first five books. Think about the miracles God did through him in leading the people out of Egypt. In addition, if a man was a true prophet of God, uh, he would often be confirmed not only by a miracle or an act of God, but he would also uh, have a fulfilled prophecy. And so it would be easy for anyone to write a book and say, I'm a prophet of God. Let me tell you what's going to happen way out in the future, a thousand years, 3,000 years from now. No one will be around in his day to verify it. So he had to give a short-term prophecy. And when a short-term prophecy was fulfilled, then you could trust the long-term prophecy. For instance, Isaiah, he predicts a man by name, Cyrus, and what Cyrus is going to do for the Jewish people, a pagan king. He makes the prophecy ever before it even happens, ever before the man is even born, and it comes true. So if you can believe someone's short-term prophecy, you ought to be able to be able to embrace their long-term prophecy. In addition, uh, if someone was truly writing from God, then what they wrote would coincide with previous revelations. So, for instance, I think I mentioned this last week, 2 Maccabees speaks about prayer, prayer for the dead. Well, that's not consistent with previous revelation. Because God said plainly in Daniel 12, for instance, 1 and 2, that there's a resurrection of the righteous and of the wicked, that people will come out of the grave and some to judgment, some to life. And so there's no interim state. There's no option after someone is resurrected to be able to go to heaven or hell or some other place. It's done. It's sealed. It's finished. So Maccabees would not coincide with what God Revealed. And by the way, it is not by accident that the New Testament quotes all of the Old Testament books, either in part or holistically, but never once do they ever quote any of the inter, uh, intertestamental books. They're helpful. They shed a lot of light on the 400 years of history. And that's why, by the way, the King James Bible included the apocryphal books with a note saying these are not inspired by God, but they'll shed light on what happened during those 400 years, bringing us into the New Testament era. The Catholics came back. They included them in their canon. Uh, the Protestant movement didn't want to be associated with such false teaching, and so they immediately removed them. But Paul reminds us, again, of the same truth, the need for consistency. And if someone comes up with something new, contrary to previous revelation, so you, you should not embrace it. And so in Galatians 1.8, if, 
if we came or even an angel from heaven came bringing to you a different gospel than the one that you've received, that person should be considered anathema. In addition, uh, another mark of canonicity is the power of the word. It's alive. It, it produces life change. Uh, the Book of Mormon doesn't produce life change. It produces sexual immorality. And so you have some really, truly practicing Mormons who have multiple wives. Um, God may record something in Scripture, and in his recording it, his describing it is not obviously a prescription of something we should do. Whereas in the Book of Mormon, uh, the Mormon church not only records polygamy, it uh, favors polygamy, very, very different position than Scripture. And then, uh, is the book accepted by the people of God? No one really truly determined uh, the canon of Scripture. They recognized it. God is the one who uh, determined what books would be included in his Bible. And so every once in a while, you'll have some heretic like Dan Brown. I think it's still online. I preached a sermon when the Da Vinci Code came out. That might be very helpful to this listener. Go to search the scriptures, type in the search bar, Dan Brown, and I have a whole sermon. He just makes these wild and crazy statements. Now, of course, he says that his book is fictional, but people read it as truth. He said there were, for instance, uh, over 80 so-called gospels and only four were chosen. Nothing could be further from the truth. There was actually only five pseudepigrapha gospels uh, that were written uh, about 100 to 300 years after the New Testament had been completed. Not 80. But again, he made up all kinds of things. It sold millions of books, made him a wealthy man. But it was one big fat lie, and he'll have to give an account to God for the evil that he propagated. So, very simply, uh, God's Word is true. He inspired only 66 books. If you want to study this issue in detail, I would encourage you to consider taking my course on bibliology. And even if you didn't want to take the whole course, take the course section on canonicity, where I walk through all of these issues in great detail. Uh, about three hours of the course is just on your question that I've answered in the last six or seven minutes. Let's go to the next question. Good question. I appreciate it. All right. Our next question comes from John. He writes, I am taking a Pentateuch class and have to do a research project on the building materials of the tabernacle. I was hoping that you may be able to point me to some resources that I can use as a point of reference, which help to explain the significance, symbolism, and meaning of the materials that God instructed Israel to use in construct in the constructing of the tabernacle? Well, it's a good question, and uh, there's much that can be learned from all Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. When you think of the tabernacle, you should think of the book of Exodus, because it's there that God prescribed exactly what it would should look like. And so in Exodus 25 to 31, he gives all of the architectural design of the tabernacle, which is what you are asking about. And then in 35 to 40, he speaks about the work that would actually be done in the tabernacle. Uh, we did a vacation Bible school one year on the tabernacle. Now, what is the tabernacle? Some people don't even know what that is that are listening. It was basically a portable temple. It was a tent-like structure that they could carry around. On one of our trips to Israel, we went to Petra that brought us way down into the south of the country, into the region where uh, the Jews spent a number of years in their wilderness wandering. 
and there was a 10 out there, and this was not on the uh, schedule, and I said, that looks like the tabernacle. I said, yeah, that's just some of these, you know, uh, Messianic Jews who, I said, can we go there? Let, let's pull in. And so we pulled in, and they had reconstructed the tabernacle. It was a great opportunity to teach about the meaning of the tabernacle and how it was structured and how it was fulfilled in Christ. Um, and, of course, there were rabbis who came down from Jerusalem who heard about it, and they thought it might be blasphemous, but they came down with their rulers and measuring tapes and everything else, and they perfectly reproduced the tabernacle. I would suggest two books. One is by David Levy. It came out in the 1990s. It's called The Tabernacle, Shadows of the Messiah. Very, very well done. Uh, there's a number of books on the tabernacle, but I think that would be helpful to you. And then another older book it was written by M.R. Dahan. The Dahans uh, were a family. They had a ministry called Radio Bible Class, and they were very dry. Some people would accuse them of in their presentation, but they were very scholarly. And M.R. Dahan was really the leader, the point man in that whole family that for a long time uh, taught. They still, to this day, produce a little devotional called My Daily Bread. But he was a medical doctor turned basically Bible scholar, and he wrote a book simply called The Tabernacle. And so if you uh, go online, you can find these books. If you go to half.com and just type in either The Tabernacle, uh, David Levy, or The Tabernacle, M.R. Dahan, you can probably find the books for 50 cents or a dollar plus shipping and save yourself a lot of money. Anyway, good question. Uh, I hope your study goes well. Let's go to the next question. All right, 843-525-1859 if you have a question for today's Bible line. Our next question comes from Anthony Z, also here in Beaufort, South Carolina. He says, hello, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, the Lord speaks of spending money from the tithe on wine or strong drink. Can we drink? What does that mean? Also in Deuteronomy chapter 14, God says that we may not eat fish without scales or fins. Should I stop eating octopus, lobster, shrimp, and other crustaceans? It's a good question. So you're really asking two questions, and let me see if I can respond. Uh, this issue of strong drink, uh, most people think of it in terms of 21st century to hard liquor like rum or whiskey and things like that, vodka. And the distilled liquors, for the most part, didn't come until about a 1,000 years after the Bible was completed. Some would point to one example in 500 A.D., but for the most part, distilled liquors didn't come until nearly a 1,000 years after the Bible's completed. And when the Bible uses this word strong drink in our English text, it's translating the Hebrew word shikar. And God speaks a lot about shikar. 21 times in the Old Testament, God uses this word— and in 19 of those 21, he condemns its use. Um, and he gives some clear instructions. You know, John the Baptist was never to participate in uh, the fruit of the vine because it could potentially become strong drink. It could ferment. A priest in ministry was prohibited from using strong drink. And by that's good counsel even for today, and that we're all believer priests. Nazarites, of course, were restricted from drinking it. Even Samson's mother, when she was carrying uh, Samson in the womb, was not to use the fruit of the vine. Why? Because it 
potentially could have been strong drink, and God wanted to set him apart. Hannah, if you remember, uh, I, I went to the place where Hannah was once and where the tabernacle um, was for 400 years, that portable tent structure. And if you remember, she was accused of using strong drink. So in a negative sense, strong drink is, is prohibited. Uh, Isaiah mentions it some eight times, each time negatively. He pronounces a woe on those who will use strong drink. Uh, he says that false prophets and false priests are characterized by using strong drinks in strong drink and not men of God. And so with that said, you should like prop your ears up and say, well, what is strong drink? It's not the distilled liquors. Obviously, it could not be because they come centuries later. It was naturally fermented beer and wine. Now, in Deuteronomy 14, which really you are anchoring two questions from because Deuteronomy 14 and Leviticus 11 are two passages in the Old Testament that deal with the diet. But Deuteronomy 14 also deals with the subject of tithe. And so God specified the place, namely the temple, uh, where the tithe was to be taken. And of course, if you were unable to make it at the given time, then you could uh, translate your material good, your uh, harvest produce into silver and carry it in silver. But if for some reason you were not able to do that, then you could bring an agricultural substitution. But God was very, very clear. For instance, he said bring a lamb if it was to be brought at the prescribed time, but if it was being brought late, you brought a calf, and so on and so forth with each of the uh, delayed expressions. And so instead of bringing uh, fresh, squeezed grape juice, you could, to show again that it was late, bring shikar. And so on the one hand, shikar, strong drink, could be considered a blessing. Why? Because it was essential to the purification of water. And so while you have all these negative prohibitions against using strong drink, which, by the way, is, you know, Budweiser and Michelob or whatever brand of beer that you, you know, and I see some of these preachers, you know, who brag about their drinking beer and and how they'll use wine and, and that those of us who teach otherwise are just legalists. No, we're not legalists. We're just ascribing to what the Scripture teaches. Now, it's obviously foolishness to say that all the wine in the Bible was unfermented. We're not saying that. There might be some ignorant straw man person that you'll create, but go after the iron man and tear him down. Understand his argument before you create some false view and tear it apart. I would recommend this brother to two articles for his reading. They're both found at searchthescriptures.org, uh, and one is um, by Robert Stein. It was an article that appeared in Christianity Today back then in 1973. It was a conservative magazine written by Bible-believing Christians. It's gone totally liberal, um, but there was an excellent article that Stein wrote. That's on my website. There's a second one written by Dr. Norman Geisler, probably one of the chief apologists of the 20th century. He died in the early part of the 21st century. One of the great men of God that the Lord used to produce so many apologetic works that Christians are using to this day or pastors refer to. And, 
He did an excellent article in Bibliotheca Sacra in the 1980s, and I've put that one up on my website as well. In reference to dietary laws, just understand that under the Old Covenant, there were certain moral laws that are binding today, and there were certain ceremonial laws that had uh, a time-bound application. And so under the Old Covenant, God distinguished his people outwardly by the clothes they wore, the way they cut their hair, and the things that they ate. Under the New Covenant, God distinguishes his people inwardly. And so the dietary laws are not in... Um, are not in place today. Now, somebody might take issue with me on Acts 15, but listen to my sermon on Acts 15 where he talks about things strangled. It's a prohibition against eating blood, not against uh, whether or not you can eat shellfish or the like. But Jesus made it very clear. A crowd of people came to him, and after he called the crowd to him, again he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are that which defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, the disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach? and is then eliminated, thus he declared all meats clean. And then he said, what proceeds out of the heart is what defiles a man. He gives that list. Similarly, in Acts 10, God uses an illustration with Peter to show that the Gentile and Jewish believers are on equal footing, and you should treat them accordingly. And he gives them this, he gives them this vision of all these unclean food that come down in this sheet three times, and God says, eat, and he says, never have I eaten anything unclean in this vision, and and God again declares all foods to be clean. So uh, we're not under those dietary laws today, uh, contrary to what some Seventh-day Adventists might think. Those were time-bound. Those were part of the ceremonial law. The way God distinguishes his people today is through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, something that the old covenant saints did not experience. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 843-525-1859. Pastor Carl, I believe we have have Keith from Kentucky. Good morning, Keith. You're live with Pastor Carl. Uh, Good morning, Pastor Carl. Uh, First, I'd like to say it's it's always an honor to get to speak with you. Your ministries had such an impact on my life. And as I'm beginning to teach in my little small church, uh, it's have also having an impact on my church. And I'm very grateful to the Lord. And I'm grateful to you and your church and uh, your ministry. Uh, my, question, my question is, I have a friend I worked with for years that was a doctor. I, I, I'm a retired nurse, and he's a uh, Jehovah Witness. And my my question is, what are some of the best scriptures I could use to try to reach this man? Because he still calls me from time to time. I'll um, I'll I'll ask the question and I'll go ahead and get off and uh, thank you, Keith. The answer. Thank yeah, you very no, much. appreciate you calling. Thanks for your encouragement and your prayer. I'm sure. Um, a number of passages. First, I'm going to recommend to Keith, in my view, the best book ever written in dealing with Jehovah's Witness. 
because again, sometimes people create a straw man and they say, well, this is what they teach. When in reality, that's not entirely accurate. It might be 80% true. And then they'll point out the 20% you're in error and they'll dismiss you. And there's a lot of sloppy apologetic literature that is written about the JWs. Uh, With that said, uh, the best book I think is written by Dr. Walter Martin, The Kingdom of the Cults. Now, a guy by the name of Ravi Zacharias updated it. Uh, I, I don't really, never really liked him. And it was not until years later I find out why, because he had that great moral crash and had been living a double life for decades. But he took uh, Walter Martin's book and updated it. So just go to half.com, which is the used book side of eBay, and type in Dr. Walter Martin, Kingdom of the Cults. It first came out in the 1960s, and he deals with some of the major cults of the time that really haven't changed, including Mormonism and Jehovah's Witness. And what he does so well is he goes to the original documents and says, this is what they say. And then he says, but here's what the scripture says. Now, the Jehovah's Witness ran into their own problem in that for a long time, in their early years, they used the translation of the Bible called the American Standard Version, the ASV, that came out in 1901. It was updated in 1950, and it became the new American Standard Version. But because people were reading it, many of the Jehovah's Witnesses who were reading that translation (laughs) ended up leaving the JWs because what they had done was selectively taught passages. And again, I will often say to people, you make the Bible mean just about anything you want to make it mean if you take it out of context. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there's no God. But if I uh, took it out of context, I might go to the Bible and say, here it is, Psalm 14, there is no God. But contextually, it means something very differently. Well, the problem they ran into is that some people didn't just study the select passages out of context that they focused on, which they put in their Watchtower literature. And so many of them were not even reading the Bible. They were just reading the Watchtower literature because like with most cults, they deny the perspicuity of the Scripture. That is to say that you can read the Bible and understand it as a believer. And so they would say, no, you can't read it. You need the approved teachers of the Jehovah's Witness. Well, they carried the Bible to the door to authenticate their ministry, but some of the people on on the side were reading it, and they ended up getting saved. So a real problem. Uh, Then they created their own translation of the Bible. It's called the New World Translation. And these people did not know Hebrew or Greek. And so if you took John 1, 1, say, for the sake of argument, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, And again, a very clear affirmation that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Well, who's the Word? Well, verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word, obviously, here on the prologue to John's Gospel, is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, these guys who knew zero Greek uh, rendered it in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. There's a rule called the Graham-Sharp rule in, in Greek, and 
anyone who knew basic Greek grammar would know that that's impossible. You could be an atheist, a confessed atheist, or a confessed agnostic, though you're not really, but if someone were, uh, they would know if they knew anything about Greek that you could not possibly translate John 1.1 in that fashion. So Dr. Martin does a good job in highlighting some of the verses even that they missed. Uh, Hebrews 1 would be a good example. That would be a great text to maybe dialogue with them over. Or even a passage, because when the JWs come to my door, and they don't come too often anymore, they used to come. I think they saw me as uh, maybe a prize uh, that they could maybe convince and win. And if we could get Brogy, we'd get more people and the problem was is people left my door questioning whether or not they were right, and they I think they they had me on a map now where they don't go here. It's it's bad for it's bad for our clients. Um, but I would ask them the question. I would say, listen, do you think it's possible for God to become a man? Do you think it is possible for God to become a man? And they will definitively say no. And so I will take them to Isaiah nine, and of course. Um, Many of us read this section of Scripture, Christmas, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And, and then he goes on to say, for a child will be born to us, in Isaiah 9, 6, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Okay, wonderful. A child will be born, a son will be given. And of course, he describes this one as a ruler, as a leader, because here, of course, in Isaiah 9, 6, as in other passages, sometimes he'll give the entire prophetic ministry of the Messiah. But again, nonetheless, this baby that is born, in his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So a baby is coming, and he names the baby, describes the baby as wonderful counselor, mighty God. Very similarly in Revelation 1 in verse 8. And so, you know, here it says a baby's going to be born. The baby's name will be called mighty God. Then one of the other things that I'll do is I'll say, well, look, um, and you have to be careful here because they'll say, well, we don't believe in heaven. We believe in the new earth. Well, okay, I can, I can embrace that because heaven ultimately will come down in the new Jerusalem and will sit on the new earth. So I would ask them this question. I'd say, well, how do you think a person is allowed onto the new earth? where they spend an eternity with God in favor. So I, I, I couch it in those words, because if you say, oh, how does a person get to heaven? They'll say, well, we don't believe in heaven. And so um, I'll couch it in those words, and they'll give a works answer, because that's their doctrine. Like most cults, they deny the salvation that God has provided through grace. And then I'll just take them to some passages, like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Romans 4, 4 and 5. Um, we'll look at passages like Galatians 2.21, uh, passages like Titus chapter uh, 3. And those are passages that all teach that salvation is not earned or merited, but it comes only by the grace of God. What you have to your advantage, Keith, is as you read Scripture, it is alive. 
And they will typically have two Bibles with them if they're a trained witness. One is the King James Bible, which I have no problem with. I can pull out their King James and show them these same verses, and they'll have the New World Translation. But when you use the Bible and you show them, hey, look, it says by grace, you're teaching by works. What are you doing? You're creating some doubt in their mind. And not only are you creating doubt in their mind when you actually read Scripture, and that's what you want to use because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And you don't want to simply argue independently of Scripture, and I say argue, make an apologetic, a defense for why you believe what you believe, but you want to make that apologetic with Scripture. And by the way, that's how the apostles did apologetics. Case in point, Peter, when he stands up on Acts 2, He is reasoning from the scriptures, as Paul is often said to do in the Acts of the Apostles. Why? Because the scripture is alive, and it penetrates the heart, unlike the New World Translation, which is grossly errant, a terrible translation from people who knew nothing. But they will at least respect you enough. I've never found one who hasn't. Uh, But they, they will at least respect you enough to let you use their King James. I would give this one caution. And I learned this actually from a Jehovah's Witness who was converted when I was a relatively new Christian. He said to me, I was a student at Boston College, he said, look, if you get into an encounter with a Jehovah's Witness, as you make your statements, they are well trained to counter that statement, which means they're not really listening to you. They are getting ready to fire back with their counter offer. And so he said, this is what you do. He said, and this, of course, he said, is what led to his own conversion. The person who witnessed to him said, I'll tell you what, I will give you 15 minutes of undistracted time. You can say whatever you want to say, and I will listen if you will give me 15 minutes of undistracted time without interrupting. We'll we'll make an agreement here that neither of us will interrupt. And that, I believe, is an atmosphere in which the Spirit of God can work and bring that person to faith. But get Dr. Walter Martin's book because you will be well-schooled in what they really believe, but also how to counter it with Holy Scripture. Good question. Let's go to the next. All right, 843-525-1859. Again, 843-525-1859. Let's go back to the phone lines. I think we have Alberto from Savannah, Georgia. Good morning, Alberto. You're live with Pastor Carl. Yes, good morning. Um, My question is, you you hear a lot of these people who are rappers or celebrities, they all read the Bible, they all claim Jesus, they call on Jesus, they they, they say they're saved, and they say that they're salting. But can can you really explain why even Christians themselves are biblically literate? Can you explain explain what, because people want to throw around the words, that's spiritual, that's spiritual, this is spiritual. So if you really define the biblical definition, what is truly the word spiritual in the biblical context of Scripture? Yeah, so you're, you're fundamentally asking what allows a person to be counted as a truly, genuinely born-again Christian. And certainly Christian music has demonstrated over the course of time that there are many artists who come along and they claim to be Christian, but they're really not. <laughs> excuse me, and given enough time, typically it demonstrates that they are not. But many Christians today, they like the beat, they like the words. I remember when Amy Grant first came 
out. I was a um, campus minister at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and this young man that I was able to introduce to Christ, who later became a pastor, he said, oh, I'm real excited about this lady, Amy Grant. I said, I don't know who she is. Talk to me about it. This was 1978. I'm not sure you were born yet then, Alberto. And uh, uh, and so he showed me some of her lyrics. And as I read them, I said, well, some of these lyrics are just erroneous. For instance, she talked about going down to the river to get baptized to get your sins washed away. And then, of course, I learned that she was Church of Christ. And, of course... Church of Christ has a different gospel. Sometimes it comes under Disciples of Christ or even the Christian Church Movement, like Atlantic Christian College and those associated with them and Atlanta Christian College. You know, so these these are just, you know, bad movements that have distorted the gospel and are preaching another gospel. That's not to say that every church that might have the name Church of Christ in front of it is a part of that conglomerate that teaches that baptism saves, or that if a church says disciples of Christ, that the pastor teaches that. But historically, that's where most of these churches are coming from, and that's where Amy Grant was coming from. Or B.J. Thomas, he was another guy who stepped up to the plate, and he was a very popular secular singer in the 1980s, and then claimed to have a born-again experience. And he cut some albums, but in the words were like really great, and he had like you know, one of these fantastic voices. But the words that he was singing was written by a guy named Pat Terry. And Pat Terry was out of Atlanta, Georgia. He was really a godly man. I'm not sure he's alive anymore, but B.J. Thomas is gone. But later, B.J. Thomas defected from the faith. And so we could even give modern examples. Uh, you know, Amy Grant, you know, again, she she's now totally uh, gone gay and endorsing of the LGBTQIA lifestyle and some of these other Christian rock bands who have now renounced the faith. Or um, we used to, I don't even want to say the guy's name. We used to play a, a, a song at the end of our share and he left his wife to marry some man. Uh, and so you've got all this stuff that's going on today. So you want to, one, make sure that a person is born again. And sometimes people don't ask some basic questions. They just go with metaphors. And usually a per, if a person is lost, they can say the metaphors because of their exposure, but they can't define the metaphors. By a metaphor, I would be mean like, well, I've accepted Christ as my Savior. Okay, well, that sounds good. And so you would, as a discerning person, ask, well, what does it mean to accept Christ? I remember asking that of a guy named Landis, and he said, well, you know, I accepted the teachings of Jesus, and I'm trying to live them out in my life. Is that spirituality? No, that's salvation by works. Actually, Romans 10 says that's rebellion, seeking to establish a righteousness of your own rather than the one that God has to gift you if you're going to go to heaven. I remember a lady who came from a Baptist church here in town, and she had worked with the migrants and taught kids choirs, and she came to a musical we had and visited the next Sunday, and me and another elder went to her church, and we didn't, I mean, to her home. We didn't even have a building then, and and I said, well, why should God let you in heaven? Well, I've committed my life to Christ. I said, well, Carol, define for me, what does it mean to commit your life to Christ? 
And she went on with a works answer. Or people will say, well, I invited Jesus into my heart. Where do you find that in the Bible? By the way, you don't find any of those. You don't find the phrase, commit your life to Christ, accept Jesus, invite him into your heart anywhere in Scripture. And if you use those, and I think there's better ways to communicate the gospel, but if you do use those, you better define them because those are not biblical metaphors that represent salvation by grace alone through faith alone. So just a few probing questions. And, of course, what sometimes we think is, oh, B.J. Thomas, you know, he's a Christian. Now God can use him because he's so famous to, you know, to, to win tens of thousands of people to Jesus. And we put him up on the platform and we violate the principle that Paul spelled out in 1 Timothy 3, not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the snare of the devil. So time is the best evidence whether or not a person's conversion is true and real, and you need to give these people time. Anyway, fair question. Let's go to the next one. Our next question comes from Sue. She writes, in the book of Acts, chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, how is it that believers did not receive the Holy Spirit when they believed? The laying on of hands, even Paul's, isn't what brings the Holy Spirit, I believe. I believe that once one believes in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters the heart. Can you please shed some light on these verses for me? Yeah, so a couple thoughts. Um, It's important that while we can learn doctrine from the Acts of the Apostles, we need to recognize that it's a transitional book. They're moving from the Old Covenant era into a New Covenant, a New Testament, a New Diatheke uh, period of time. And so when you read Acts, you need to read the Acts of the Apostles in light of the Epistles. So you're absolutely right. In Ephesians 1, it says, You also, having heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you hear the gospel, you believe the gospel, and you are sealed by the Spirit. And Paul will later say in that same epistle, 430, you're sealed for the day of redemption. Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, he will be with you, and he'll be not just with you, he'll be in you forever. So the moment you believe at this point, you receive the Spirit of God, and he is in you forever. That wasn't always true. Obviously, in Acts chapter 2, you had 120 believers in the upper room, but they had not received the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus said, don't even go out and try to preach for me and win people to Jesus until you receive the promise of the Father, the coming Spirit, what the prophets wrote about. And so that was unique. Uh, That's something that God wrote. You can no more reproduce Pentecost than you can reproduce Calvary or Bethlehem. That was a unique historical event that took place. There's two exceptions in the Acts after that where people are given the Spirit of God after they truly believe. One is in Acts chapter 8 where uh, you have Samaritans, and they had been born from above in the sense that they had received Jesus as their Savior, but they had not been born again in the fullness of Uh, sense, and that they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the Word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Why? For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of 
the Lord Jesus. And they began laying hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Why does this break the pattern? God, in his wisdom, allowed it to break the pattern. Remember, Samaritans were considered, quote-unquote, half-breeds. They're half-Jewish, half-Gentile. So the Gentiles didn't like them, and the Jewish people certainly didn't like them because they intermarried outside of what uh, God had instructed in the Torah. And so they were somewhat of a despised group. And so the woman at the well, you're a Jew, you're talking to me, a Samaritan. And so there was the potentiality for two churches. And so had God just sent the Spirit as he had, uh, and as he will say in Acts 10, the moment you believe with Cornelius and his household, no laying on of hands in in chapter 10. Um, Had he just done that, then uh, there could have been a divided church. So when the apostles come down and they lay hands on, they are authenticating, this is a work from God they are on the same level as we are. The other exception is the one you mentioned in Acts 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. Now understand, the word disciples is the Greek word mafetes. It simply means a learner here in the plural. And every time you see the word disciple is not always in reference to a genuine believer. It just means a learner. And so, for instance, in John 6, you have these disciples who turn away from the Lord. And Jesus said, are you guys going to leave too? And Peter said, who else has the words of eternal life? They were there to learn from Jesus. They certainly enjoyed the meal he had just provided supernaturally, but they were not yet converted. And so context is everything. So Paul said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What is he doing? He's asking a diagnostic question of sorts because these are disciples and Paul wants to find out where they are in the discipleship, the learning process. Had they genuinely been converted? And their answer to him is, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was was coming after him, that is in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were then baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what were they? These were disciples of John. They come to Israel maybe for a prescribed feast. Uh, They see this prophet of God, the last in the Old Testament series of prophets, and he's preaching, and he's saying, Messiah is coming, Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts, get ready for the Messiah. The promise that God has spoken of for centuries is about to be fulfilled. And they were baptized by John, but they hadn't yet heard the message that, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, namely Yeshua, Jesus, had actually come, died, was buried, and was raised from the dead. And that's why Paul is asking this diagnostic question, which, by the way, affirms the truth that you are arguing that at the moment you believe, you receive the Spirit of God. And that's why he asks this question. That's why Paul can write in Romans 8, 9, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not one of him. But he is not teaching, as in traditional Pentecostal theology, that a person first gets saved, and then after they get saved, they have this deeper work of the Holy Spirit 
initially, historically, they said you get the Spirit after you're saved. Again, they're taking historical passages and removing them from the broader context of time and the rest of the New Testament. And um, Or later they have taught, and more currently, that you get this second work of grace, typically they would say, as accompanied by speaking in tongues. And of course, I can't even tell you how many people I've met out of Pentecostal churches who've spoken in tongues. One guy did it right in front of me, and then when I asked him, you know, what basis does God let a person into heaven, he couldn't even answer the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. But he had this experience, and because he had this experience, he assumed he was spiritual. But he wasn't. He wasn't born again. And so what we have going on here is a unique setting. And again, it's a, a historical account, uh, but it's not the pattern. And so you would go to passages like Ephesians 1, 13 to 15 uh, to argue. But what I would say to this person who called is uh, go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, type in Acts under the search bar. You'll see tons of sermons on Acts. Listen to this sermon on Acts 19. What I answered in the last seven minutes, I take an hour and 10 minutes to answer. Good question. Let's go to the next. Our next question comes from Belle out of Beaufort, South Carolina. She writes, if physical death and spiritual death entered the world when the fall occurred in the Garden of Eden, and if the millennial reign of Christ is the world as it should have been, then why is there physical death in the millennium reign? Well, it's a good question, and you might want to listen to my two messages, <coughs> excuse me, my two messages when heaven comes to earth. And I very clearly uh, articulate that this is not actually heaven. This is just kind of a picture, a snapshot, a little bit of what heaven will be like. And so it's important to recognize that in heaven, there is no death. Death has passed away, John will write in Revelation chapter 21. So obviously, when people take some of the uh, passages like Randy Alcorn that are dealing with the millennium, and he says, this is heaven, read the whole text because there's death during the millennium. If a man lives only to 100 years old, he's considered cursed. And so there is death. Why? Because there will be people who will enter the millennium in their natural bodies. They're called tribulation saints. And again, I will often say, quoting one of my professors at Dallas Seminary, Dr. Dwight Pentecost, when the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, or you will come up with nonsense. And so the simple reading of Revelation is that there are people in the time of this thousand-year reign who are not born again. There will be people who, it appears from Isaiah 65, who will live an extended period of time, such that if someone's a hundred, you know, we'll consider him a youth, and if he dies, it was only because he was brought under the sovereign rod of the Messiah who's reigning on the earth with a rod of iron. Why does he have to reign with a rod of iron if everyone is in a resurrection body and can't sin? Because not everyone is in a resurrection body. There will be tribulation saints who will enter the kingdom in their natural bodies. They'll be able to procreate, unlike people in their resurrection bodies who are like the angels and that angels don't procreate and have other little angelic babies. And 
yet the text goes on to say that while Satan is bound for a thousand years, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. He'll come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. And then the scripture says in verse 9 of 20, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, that's Jerusalem, and fire came down from them and devoured them. Who are these people? These are the children of tribulation saints. Remember, once saved, always saved. The tribulation saints who enter into the millennial reign will never deny Jesus. They are eternally secure. But their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren, however many kids you can have in that period of time, will have to make a decision for Christ. You would think that it would be just the simple thing to do, but it's no different than when Jesus was here the first time. People heard him teach. They saw his love, his compassion, his care, his uh, preaching that he would die on the cross in their place, and yet many still rejected him. He will be reigning here, and one of the functions of the millennium is really to show what our capacity is and what God saved us from. It will be an expression that will highlight his grace, that even with Jesus ruling on the earth, even with the devil bound for the whole thousand years, people will still reject Jesus, and some will actually think they can kill God Almighty and Satan, by his deception, will get them to try to wage war. And in a moment's time, before a shot is even fired, God will end that problem. Anyway, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org, uh, type in Revelation. There's 70-plus hours of teaching on the book of Revelation that I think you'll find very, very helpful. Well, we're out of time. Thanks for being with us today. If you don't have a church home, I invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church. We have meeting places in Gray, South Carolina. Uh, that's in Jasper County. We have a meeting location in Aiken County in the town of Graniteville. And here in Buford at 9.15 and 11 o'clock, we meet at 638 Paris Island Gateway. We invite you to come and worship with us. God bless you as you walk with Christ. 